0: Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question, in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, Go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest.
1: In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on our study in the book of Hebrews. We're in our last chapter, 13, and we'll be starting in verse 17 and this has really been a very interesting study we really appreciate mark and all the work that and diligence that uh, that he's put forth to bring this most interesting and eye opening Hebrews was a very difficult book for me to even understand so he's brought a lot of clarity to the book and really the importance of Hebrews And so what we'd like to do, of course, is open with a word of prayer. Chuck,
2: please. Lord uh, Jesus, thank you for uh, being with us and guiding us and for your word that we can use to uh, guide our lives and to steer us in your path. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would strengthen us in our resolve. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would lift our nation up for peace, for a change, and that we would, uh, out of this election time that we're in now that uh, seems so hopeless, that somehow something good would come of this that would lead in the direction of peace. We thank you for marking his word as he unravels this for us in the book of Hebrews, and we thank you for his effort scholarship. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. amen. Thank you. Thank you so much, and welcome, Mark. Well,
3: thank you. It's always good to be back with our tight-knit group. And let's see what we can do here. We, we last time looked at really the last thematic section of this book, uh, comparing the spiritual sacrifices of the new age to the physical animal sacrifices of the old age. And, of course, our audience here is straddling two ages. They are living through the end of the old age with the law of Moses and the temple and the priests and all that. And they are living through the first generation of the new age where everything is spiritual. And so we we saw that big contrast last time. Let's go ahead and read just three verses at the moment, 17, 18, and 19, please.
1: Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls and those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner.
3: Great, thank you. Now, are you reading from the King James there, Tom?
1: No, this is the New King James.
3: New King James, well... It's very similar. This verse seventeen is one of those verses that the King James translators decided to translate in the most authoritarian manner possible when they talk about obey those that rule over you and and submit yourselves. We have to remember that at this time in English history, Catholicism and anglicism are battling back and forth, and a lot of these scholars who translated the King James Bible, are very, very Catholic in their outlook. And even if they weren't, James is a very authoritarian ruler, and he is supposed to be the head of the Church of England, or Anglican Church, as it's called. And so he believed in the divine right of kings and the absolute unconditional submission to God's agents. And so if you're in a hierarchical religion or religious institution, you like the way the King James is translated. But the Young's literal translation, for instance, says, Be obedient to those leading you and be subject, for they watch for your souls as about to give an account so that they can do this with joy and not grieving. This would be unprofitable to you. The literal version says, yield to those taking the lead of you and submit, for they watch your souls. So do you catch the subtle difference in these translations as opposed to the New King James or the King James? There is no mention of them ruling in the literal translation from the Greek. There is a discretion in the translation, but again, in the King James, we see it here. We see this also in Romans, very much so, where some people believe we must unconditionally submit to civil government as if they are an agent of God. But that is definitely not what is being discussed here. It's talking about those believers who are the leaders, the elders, the patriarchs of their family unit so to speak and basically they've got enough to worry about don't cause them any more
1: trouble <laughs> some of us cause a little bit of trouble in our church families well now the uh, english standard version uh, says obey your leaders and submit to them or they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not groaning so that kind of points to what you just said.
3: Yeah, you know, kind of halfway in between, it's still a little more authoritarian than the two literal translations that I have. Uh You know, is the church an institution with hierarchical leadership like we see in the Catholic Church, in the Mormon Church, in the Anglican Church, or is it a group of autonomous families of believers, such as the congregational church modeled for centuries when no one else would do it, and the Mennonite and others, where each group is autonomous and led by their own elders. And I believe it's the latter model rather than the former authoritarian hierarchical model.
2: My favorite literal Greek New Testament paraphrases it this way. This is not the extreme literal language of the direct translation, but it uses these terms. Be persuaded by your leaders and be deferring to them, for they are vigilant for the sake of your soul. So it clearly is talking about spiritual leaders, not political leaders, as I would read this, as opposed to the word submit, which of course gives you the impression that it's talking about something legalistic. But be be persuaded, it says, rather than submit. And uh, for they are vigilant for your soul uh sort of watching out for you with their lives and uh render an account that they may be doing this with joy and not with groaning for this is disadvantageous for you. Uh so anyway, support in support of what you've uh, your interpretation that seems to be followed pretty well. I certainly get the impression that's talking about your spiritual leaders or deacons or whoever it is that you look to in your congregation or their congregation, I should say.
3: Yes. Yeah. Thank you, yes. I, I, it, I mean, this trend is, is pretty easy to document uh, by the King James translators to try to boost the concept of the divine right of kings, the absolute rule of the church hierarchy and kings, the power of life and death, not only of physical life and death, but spiritual life and death over the flock. So it's a pretty scary concept. I think that's what gave us the dark ages. And so I'm not eager to repeat it myself. So anyway, thank you for those comments. So we need to help our family group leaders, the women and the men, as they try to guide by example the younger people in our local churches. The main thing I take for that. Now, the author is... Requesting prayer for himself as we move on to verse 18, and we get from this that there was an established relationship between the, the readers of this letter and the author of this letter. He has been separated from them, and he's trying to be restored to them, and this is what he's asking them to pray for, that he might clear up whatever obstacles are in his path so that he might get back to them more quickly, and I don't know, uh, he may have some imperial entanglements here that he has to deal with. He's uh, accused of something, but he has a clear conscience, and he expresses his desire to behave honorably in all things. But as we only know too well, sometimes what God would have us to do, which is right, is not praised and honored by the civil governments. And in fact, sometimes they actually condemn things that God wants us to do. And sadly, we've seen quite a bit of that in recent months and years. If there's nothing else, we can go ahead and read verses 20 and 21.
1: Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well, pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.
3: This would normally be the uh, end of the letter because this is what you call the doxology, the closing prayer. But we have some personal notes uh, tacked on after this certainly the concepts of this letter are uh, wrapped up in this closing prayer the God of peace being discussed is, is probably not speaking just of the absence of carnal warfare as much as it is the God who has made peace between himself and Israel who as we've seen over and over again, distanced herself as a people from God. I mean, spat in his face, took all of his good gifts for granted, ran to commit idolatry with all the neighboring idols over and over. The whole Old Testament is full of these sad stories. But the work of reconciliation, as we saw in the book of Acts, was to bring Israel back to life as God's people, to transform her from a physical nation into a spiritual nation, extremely important. And in the course of doing that, open the gates and invite all peoples from every nation and race to come into this new spiritual Israel as citizens in equal standing with the physical descendants of Jacob. And this blood of the covenant is, of course, quite different from the blood of the old covenant, which was not eternal. We talk of the blood of Christ, we sing about it, but our friends who demand a literal, physical interpretation of the Bible probably don't stop to think that it's not the physical, literal blood of Jesus of Nazareth that saves them. I mean, and I may have, forgive me if I've used this illustration before, but if you had a vial of Jesus' blood as it dripped down off the cross, I mean, what, what could you sell that for on eBay? But yet it would have no intrinsic worth, That is not the blood that's being spoken of here, that physical blood. It's a physical explanation for a very difficult spiritual concept. And this has been our theme throughout this entire letter, is to look at the physical things in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and how they really teach a much higher spiritual truth. So when we talk about the blood of the eternal covenant or the blood of Christ, this is not physical, literal blood. This is rather the idea of suffering to the point of giving up one's spiritual life in order to be able to cleanse the spiritual ills of all human beings who have ever lived and who trust in Yahweh or Jesus Christ. Now, for their salvation. So we see a little bit of our theme in this closing prayer, but to also drive home the last point that we made, Jesus is mentioned as the great shepherd of the sheep. He is our authority. He is our only authoritarian leader. There is no earthly designate who stands in as the shepherd of the sheep uh, in spite, again, of what some major hierarchical religious institutions would claim. The only head we have is Jesus Christ. And as we've mentioned before, as we find Paul writing about in the letter to the Ephesians, we are not saved as we are not invited into spiritual Israel just because God thought it was a good idea, but rather he has an eternal purpose for us. We are saved to serve. We are saved to work. And so he can bring to pass in us, in our lives, whatever gives him pleasure. And, of course, that is standing up for him in a world that is full of sick and dark people, praising his name and holding him up and demonstrating love for the brethren to show the world the love that Christ has for his people. This brings him glory, and that's how the prayer ends, to whom be the glory forever and ever. He is glorified by us acting responsibly as his kingdom on earth interestingly this is the only reference to Christ's resurrection in this entire letter and yet the whole letter is really built around that little event alright any other thoughts, comments or questions
2: well thanks for the good explanation of the way the uh, Bible translators during the King James era thought of things because I think that's very constructive to understand that.
3: Well and it, it bleeds over it bleeds over into many areas, but most particularly from my view of looking at all of the scriptures as fulfilled, all of the promises that God made to man as being fulfilled in Christ, the tense of the verbs was dramatically altered by the King James translators, and we talked about this really in the last lesson, that word mellow, which means it's about to happen. The King James translators just changed it because it didn't fit their preconceived idea, so they just said it will happen. So there's a big difference between saying something will happen and something is about to happen, and this is what the King James translators did over and over and over again in virtually every book of the new testament and there's there's a lot of other things too <laughs> besides the authoritarian leaders and the tense of the verbs, but none of them come to mind here at the moment all right well let's read the um, the last four verses here these personal notes, greetings, and the final benediction,
1: please taking your cue, mark, I am switching from the New King James Version to the literal New Testament version and it says now I exhort you brothers bear with the word of exhortation for I indeed wrote to you with a few words take notice of our brother Timothy having been released with whom if he comes quicker I will see you greet all the ones leading you and all the saints ones from Italy greet you grace be with you all
3: All right, so we finally get to the end here after uh, 29 lessons. The word of encouragement or exhortation that he's asking them to put up with is referring in all likelihood to this entire letter that we have been examining over the last few months. He could have made it a lot longer. We do see brevity in... The New Testament writings, I mean, it's a pretty thin little book when you just look at the New Testament. And I don't recommend doing that, by the way. But the writers were very concise and efficient with their message. And this one, even though it's a little bit longer compared to some of the New Testament letters, it's still very brief and succinct considering the depth of the message that it is conveying Great,
1: thank you. I'm kind of curious here, Mark, at the end that he mentions Timothy. Would this be one of the things that would point to that, yes, maybe the author really was Paul since he was so closely associated with Timothy, being his spiritual son, as it were? But of course, it's a small crowd, I guess. These yeah. folks obviously traveled around, and so whoever the author of Hebrews would probably know a lot of the same players i guess
3: well i would think so because you you know remember the 12 apostles are sent really to palestine to, to the palestinian judeans there and then paul alone is sent out to the rest of the world and he goes to the Judean diaspora, those that are scattered abroad outside of Palestine. He always goes there first before he goes to the, to the Gentiles or non-Judean believers or prospects. So it would be a relatively small circle of those workers who are traveling amongst the synagogues in the greater Roman Empire outside of Palestine proper. And I'm sure we could find those who argue both ways from this, that there's really no doubt that this is the same Timothy that we know of from Paul from the book of Acts and Luke and from Paul's letters to Timothy. It is certainly that same person, but it is inconclusive as to whether that means that it's more or less likely that Paul was the author of this letter.
2: Mark, when would you think this might have been written? Do you have a hunch or a feel? What date?
3: Well, we see, again, with the fulfilled view of the New Testament, the letters are all written prior to A.D. 70, which, without disputation, is the end of the old age. These letters are all written as that age is winding down. So nearly all of the New Testament letters are written in the range of of A.D. 45 to A.D. 70. And this one is a little bit earlier than some of the other ones. The worst of the persecution that broke out under Nero in the year 65 has not happened yet, although it's about to happen apparently from the tone of the letter. And so we're looking at a date of like 63 to 65 A.D. for this book, we don't know but that is the best range possible from the context and from from the internal evidence of the letter and this is the only count of Timothy being imprisoned and since Paul never mentions Timothy being imprisoned some people believe that this is written after Paul's execution or at least after Paul wrote uh, the second letter to Timothy. But again, none of that is completely conclusive. We have uh, greetings sent to to those same guides, or their absolute rulers, depending on how you wish to translate it, and all of God's people. And the writer mentions those who are from Italy. This is not even conclusive, whether the author is writing from Italy or he's outside of Italy, but he's with a group of people from Italy, the the way that it's written. So we did talk a lot about this in other lessons earlier, as far as the uh, the author of this letter and the audience of this letter. Grace be with you all as it ends is identical to the conclusion of Paul's letter to Titus in uh, Titus three verse fifteen, but it's not anything unusual for any Christian author to be closing their letter with. So we get to uh, to the end at last, and again we see throughout this letter the contrast between the physical things of the old age of Moses and the law and the spiritual things of Christ. And we looked at the finality of Christianity, and this is, of course, very important. So many are saying that, oh, we're not finished yet. God has more to reveal to us. God hasn't conquered death yet. Uh, That's still got to be revealed to us. But this author is writing as if everything was revealed in finality through Jesus Christ. The gospel and the law are contrasted. The suffering of Jesus as a human being, as well as as God, is uh, talked about, and how this makes Him a far superior high priest to the physical and corrupt high priests of the Judean nation uh, of that time. And then He talks about Jesus being greater than Moses, and that the true Sabbath rest of God is found in Christ. And that, sadly, our audience, some of them were considering uh, walking away from that. And our writer basically tells them they would be absolute fools to walk away from what God has gone to all of this effort to uh, do for them in Jesus Christ. And they don't want to forfeit this true Sabbath rest, which is the state of being in Christ, in Christ's body, part of his new Temple. And they are encouraged over and over to persevere, to remain steadfast, to understand that God is in the process of imminently fulfilling all of the promises that He has made to His people through the entire history recorded in the Bible. The early promises made to Abraham, again, won't be physical real estate, but it will be this spiritual rest in the spiritual land of Israel in the new age. The oath is superior. The character of Jesus, the high priest, is superior. The priesthood is superior in the new age compared to the old. The old covenant is about to be completely replaced. We found in chapter 8, the physical temple was temporary and was about to be done away with. In chapter 9, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice and the mediator of the perfect new covenant. And all of the old things were just a shadow of the reality. This is what we call typology, where physical persons, places, and events in the Old Testament teach and depict a greater spiritual reality that was revealed in the days of Christ and the apostles and recorded in what we call the New Testament. Writings. We have much better access to God through the sacrifice of Christ than the old physical Israel ever did through the sacrifices under the law. And then we get into chapter 11 all of the examples of faith throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Those before the flood, Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses, during the Exodus and then some more examples after that. And then we're told that all of the faith of all of these heroes is vindicated and made worthwhile because of the great redemption work by Jesus Christ himself. He's called the pioneer and perfecter of our faith in chapters 12 and The imminent persecution they would all endure is compared to discipline given by a father to sons, emphasizing, again, the better family relationship in the new age compared to what they experienced in the old age, where God was still distant from all of them. He's not that way anymore. And then, again, the encouragement to get out and do the things God wants us to do. A final comparison here between the earthly Mount Sinai and the spiritual Mount Zion on which God's new spiritual temple was being constructed as the letter was being written. And then in the final chapter, reminders to live a good moral life, to follow the examples of the leaders of that generation and then, again, the uh, true spiritual sacrifices that were offered that were so strange to both the Judean and the Roman, who were all used to bloody animal sacrifices, and then uh, the things that we talked about tonight. So that's kind of a summary of this great letter. Again, it's, it intimidates people. They can't understand the tenses of the verbs that have been butchered and altered by the King James translators. It doesn't seem to follow in sequence and make sense. And yet when we look at it in the proper context of all of the Old Testament promises being fulfilled in the days of Christ and his apostles, we went through the entire letter without running into any contradictions or impossible sequences to follow. And and what was called a difficult book is really not so
1: difficult after all.
3: All right, any final thoughts or
1: comments? Good, appreciate. Well, thank you, Mark. That was just great, and we hope that anybody that listens to this podcast, this last lesson of uh, the 29 lessons in Hebrews, and we'll hope that maybe that uh, will inspire to start at number one and go through the whole series. I think it's very, very worthwhile. And like Mark has said, it is not so difficult when you understand it in the proper context. So, thanks again. Mark,
0: for your brilliant work here, and uh, we greatly appreciate it. You're more than welcome. Here. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org. For a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org you can watch for free our award winning documentary film Christian Zionism The Tragedy and the Turning Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big and press on towards the straight gate.